Chapter Five, Part One of Knots Untied by J. C. Ryle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Five, Baptism, Part One. There is perhaps no subject in Christianity about which such difference of opinion exists as the sacrament of baptism. The very name recalls to one's mind an endless list of strifes, disputes, heart-burnings, controversies, and divisions. It is a subject, moreover, on which even eminent Christians have long been greatly divided. Praying, Bible-reading, holy men who can agree on all other points find themselves hopelessly divided about baptism. The fall of man has affected the understanding as well as the will. Fallen, indeed, must human nature be when millions who agree about sin and Christ and grace are as the poles asunder about baptism. I propose in the following pages to offer a few remarks on this disputed subject. I am not vain enough to suppose that I can throw any light on a controversy which so many great and good men have handled in vain. But I know that every additional witness is useful in a disputed case. I wish to strengthen the hands of those I agree with, and to show them that we have no reason to be ashamed of our opinions. I wish to suggest a few things for the consideration of those I do not agree with and to show them that scriptural argument in this matter is not, as some suppose, all on one side. There are four points which I propose to examine in considering this subject. 1. What is baptism? Its nature. 2. In what manner should baptism be administered? Its mode. 3. Who ought to be baptized? Its subjects. 4. What place baptism ought to occupy in religion? Its true position. If I can supply a satisfactory answer to these four questions, I feel that I shall have contributed something to the clearing of many minds. 1. Let us consider first the nature of baptism. What is it? 1. Baptism is an ordinance appointed by our Lord Jesus Christ for the continual admission of fresh members into His visible church. In the army every new soldier is formally added to the muster roll of his regiment, in a school every new scholar is formally entered on the books of the school, and every Christian begins his church membership by being baptized. Footnote. This is a point which ought to be carefully noticed. Here lies the one simple reason why the children of Baptists or any other unbaptized persons cannot have the burial service of the prayer book read over them when they are buried. It is a service expressly intended for members of the professing church. An unbaptized person is not such a member. There is, therefore, no service that we can read. To suppose that we pronounce any opinion on a man's state of soul and consider him lost because we read no service over him is simply absurd. We pronounce no opinion at all. He may be in paradise with the penitent thief for anything we know. His soul after death is not affected either by reading a service or by not reading one. The plain reason is we have nothing to read. End of footnote. 2. Baptism is an ordinance of great simplicity. The outward part, or sign, is water, administered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or in the name of Christ. The inward part, or thing signified, is that washing in the blood of Christ, an inward cleansing of the heart by the Holy Ghost, without which no one can be saved. The 37th article of the Church of England says rightly, Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth. 3. 
baptism is an ordinance on which we may confidently expect the highest blessings when it is rightly used it is unreasonable to suppose that the lord jesus the great head of the church would solemnly appoint an ordinance which was to be as useless to the soul as mere human enrollment or an act of civil registration the sacrament we are considering is not a mere man-made appointment but an institution appointed by the king of kings when faith and prayer accompany baptism and a diligent use of scriptural means follows it we are justified in looking for much spiritual blessing without faith and prayer baptism becomes a mere form four baptism is an ordinance which is expressly named in the new testament about eighty times almost the last words of our lord jesus christ were a commandment to baptize go ye and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost matthew chapter twenty eight verse nineteen we find peter saying on the day of pentecost repent and be baptized every one of you and asking in the house of cornelius can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized acts chapter two verse thirty eight chapter ten verse forty seven we find st paul was not only baptized himself but baptized disciples wherever he went to say as some do in the face of these texts that baptism is an institution of no importance is to pour contempt on the bible to say as others do that baptism is only a thing of the heart and not an outward ordinance at all is to say that which seems flatly contradictory to the bible footnote i am quite aware that the whole body of christians called friends or quakers reject water baptism and allow no baptism except the inward baptism of the heart to their own master they must stand or fall i am not their judge the grace faith and holiness of many quakers are beyond all question they are simple matters of fact Christians like Mrs. Fry and J. J. Gurney most evidently have received the Holy Ghost, and would reflect honor on any church. Would God that many baptized Christians were like them. But the best people are fallible at their best. How people, so sensible and well-read as many Quakers have been and are, can possibly refuse to see water baptism in Scripture as an ordinance obligatory on all professing Christians, is a problem which I cannot pretend to solve. It passes my understanding." I can only suppose that God allows the Quakers to be a perpetual testimony against Romish views of water baptism, and a standing witness to the churches that God can, in some cases, give grace without the use of any sacraments at all. End of footnote. 5. Baptism is an ordinance which, according to Scripture, a man may receive, and yet get no good from it. Can anyone doubt that Judas Iscariot, Simon Magus, Ananias and Sapphira, Demas, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Nicholas were all baptized people. Yet what benefit did they receive from baptism? Clearly, for anything that we see, none at all. Their hearts were not right in the sight of God. Acts chapter 8 verse 21. They remained dead in trespasses and sins, and were dead while they lived. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 6. 6. Baptism is an ordinance which in apostolic times went together with the first beginnings of a man's religion. In the very day that many of the early Christians repented and believed, in that very day they were baptized. Baptism was the expression of their newborn faith and the starting point in their Christianity. No wonder that in such cases it was regarded as the vehicle of all spiritual blessings. The scriptural expressions, buried with Christ in baptism, 
putting on Christ in baptism, baptism doth also save us, would be full of deep meaning to such persons. Romans chapter 6 verse 4, Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21. They would exactly tally with their experience. But to apply such expressions indiscriminately to the baptism of infants in our own day is, in my judgment, unreasonable and unfair. It is an application of scripture which, I believe, was never intended. 7. Baptism is an ordinance which a man may never receive, and yet be a true Christian and be saved. The case of the penitent thief is sufficient to prove this. Here was a man who repented, believed, was converted, and gave evidence of true grace, if ever any one did. We read of no one else to whom such marvelous words were addressed as the famous sentence, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. And yet there is not the slightest proof that this man was ever baptized at all. Without baptism and the Lord's Supper, he received the highest spiritual blessings while he lived, and was with Christ in paradise when he died. To assert, in the face of such a case, that baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation is something monstrous. To say that baptism is the only means of regeneration, and that all who die unbaptized are lost for ever, is to say that which cannot be proved by Scripture, and is revolting to common sense. I leave this part of my subject here. I commend the seven propositions which I have laid down to the serious attention of all who wish to obtain clear views about baptism. In considering the two sacraments of the Christian religion, I hold it to be of primary importance to put away from us the vagueness and mysteriousness with which too many surround them. Above all, let us be careful that we believe neither more nor less about them than we can prove by plain texts of Scripture. There is a baptism which is absolutely necessary to salvation, beyond all question. There is a baptism without which no one, whether old or young, has ever gone to heaven. But what baptism is this? It is not the baptism of water, but the inward baptism which the Holy Ghost gives to the heart. It is not a baptism which any man can offer, whether ordained or unordained. It is the baptism which is the special privilege of the Lord Jesus Christ to give to all his mystical members. It is not a baptism which man's eye can see, but an invisible operation on the inward nature. Baptism, says St. Peter, saves us. But what baptism does he tell us he means? Not the washing of water, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. By one spirit we are baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It is the peculiar prerogative of the Lord Jesus to give this inward and spiritual baptism. He it is, said John the Baptist, which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost, John chapter 1, verse 33. Let us take heed that we know something of this saving baptism, the inward baptism of the Holy Ghost. Without this, it signifies little what we think about the baptism of water. No man, whether high churchman or low churchman, Baptist or Episcopalian, no man was ever yet saved without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It is a weighty and true saying of the Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge in the reign of Edward VI. By the baptism of water we are received into the outward church of God, by the baptism of the Spirit into the inward Bucer on John chapter 1 verse 33. 2. Let us now consider the mode of baptism. In what way ought it to be administered? 
This is a point on which a wide difference of opinion prevails. Some Christians maintain strongly that complete immersion in water is absolutely necessary and essential to make a valid baptism. They hold that no person is really baptized unless he is entirely dipped and covered over with water. Others, on the contrary, maintain with equal decision that immersion is not necessary at all, and that sprinkling, or pouring a small quantity of water on the person baptized, fulfills all the requirements of Christ. My own opinion is distinct and decided, that Scripture leaves the point an open question. I can find nothing in the Bible to warrant the assertion that either dipping, or pouring, or sprinkling is essential to baptism. I believe it would be impossible to prove that either way of baptizing is exclusively right or that either is downright wrong. So long as water is used, in the name of the Trinity, the precise mode of administering the ordinance is left an open question. This is the view adopted by the Church of England. The baptismal service expressly sanctions dipping in the most plain terms. Footnote. The rubric of the prayer book service for the public baptism of infants says, If the godfather and godmother shall certify to the priest that the child may well endure it, he shall dip it in the water discreetly and warily. End of footnote. To say, as many Baptists do, that the Church of England is opposed to baptism by immersion is a melancholy proof of the ignorance in which many dissenters live. Thousands, I am afraid, find fault with the prayer book without having examined its contents. If anyone wishes to be baptized by dipping in the Church of England, let him understand that the parish clergyman is just as ready to dip him as the Baptist minister and that he may be baptized by immersion in the church as well as in chapel. There is a large body of Christians, however, who are not satisfied with this moderate view of the question. They will have it that baptism by dipping or immersion is the only scriptural baptism. They say that all the persons whose baptism we read of in the Bible were dipped. They hold, in short, that where there is no immersion there is no baptism. I fear it is almost waste of time to attempt to say anything on this much-disputed question. So much has been written on both sides without effect during the last two hundred years that I cannot hope to throw any new light on the subject. The utmost that I shall try to do is to suggest a few considerations to any whose minds are in doubt. I only ask them to remember that I do not say that baptism by dipping is positively wrong. All I say is that it is not absolutely necessary and is not absolutely commanded in Scripture. I ask, then, any doubting mind to consider whether it is in the least probable that all the cases of baptism described in Scripture were cases of complete immersion? The three thousand baptized in one day at the Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the jailer at Philippi suddenly baptized at midnight in prison, Acts chapter 16, verse 33, is it at all likely or probable that they were dipped? To my own mind, trying to take an impartial view, it seems in the highest degree improbable. Let those believe it who can. I ask anyone to consider, furthermore, whether it is at all probable that a mode of baptism would have been enjoined as necessary, which in some climates is impracticable. At the North and South Poles, for example, the temperature, for many months, is many degrees below freezing point. In tropical countries, on the other hand, water is often so extremely scarce that it is almost impossible to find enough for common drinking purposes. Now will any maintain that in such climates there can be no baptism without immersion? Will anyone tell us that in such climates it is really necessary that every candidate for baptism should be completely dipped? Let those believe it who can. I ask anyone to consider, further, 
whether it is at all probable that a mode of baptism would have been enjoined which in some conditions of health is simply impossible there are thousands of persons whose lungs and general constitution are in so delicate a state that total immersion in water and especially in cold water would be certain death to them now will any maintain that such persons ought to be debarred from baptism unless they are dipped let those believe it who can i ask any one to consider further whether it is probable that a mode of baptizing would be enjoined which in many countries would practically exclude women from baptism the sensitiveness and strictness of eastern nations about the treatment of their wives and daughters are notorious facts there are many parts of the world in which women are so completely separated and secluded from the other sex that there is the greatest difficulty in even speaking to them about religion to talk of such an ordinance as baptizing them by immersion would in hundreds of cases be perfectly absurd the feelings of fathers husbands and brothers however personally disposed to christian teaching would be revolted by the mention of it and will any one maintain that such women are to be left unbaptized altogether because they cannot be dipped let those believe it who can i believe i might well leave the subject of the mode of baptism at this point but there are two favorite arguments which the advocates of immersion are constantly bringing forward about which i think it right to say something a one of these favorite arguments is based on the meaning of the greek word in the new testament which we translate to baptize it is constantly asserted that this word can mean nothing else but dipping or complete immersion the reply to this argument is short and simple the assertion is utterly destitute of foundation those who are best acquainted with new testament greek are decidedly of opinion that to baptize means to wash or cleanse with water but whether by immersion or not must be entirely decided by the context we read in luke chapter eleven verse thirty eight that when our lord dined with a certain pharisee the pharisee marvelled that he had not first washed before dinner it may surprise some readers perhaps to hear that these words would have been rendered more literally that he had not first been baptized before dinner yet it is evident to common sense that the pharisee could not have expected our lord to immerse or dip himself over head in water before dining it simply means that he expected him to perform some ablution or to pour some water over his hands before the meal but if this is so what becomes of the argument that to baptize always means complete immersion it is cut from under the feet of the advocate of dipping and to reason further about it is mere waste of time b another favorite argument in favor of baptism by immersion is drawn from the expression buried in christ in baptism which st paul uses on two occasions romans chapter six verse four colossians chapter two verse twelve it is asserted that going down into the water of baptism and being completely dipped under it is an exact figure of christ's burial and coming up out of the grave and represents our union with christ and participation in all the benefits of his death and resurrection but unfortunately for this argument there is no proof whatever that christ's burial was going down into a hole dug in the ground on the contrary it is far more probable that his grave was a cave cut out of the side of a rock like that of lazarus and on a level with the surrounding ground such at least was the common mode of burying round jerusalem at this rate there is no resemblance whatever between going down into a bath or baptistry and the burial of our lord the actions are not like one another that by profession of a lively faith in christ at baptism a believer declares his union with christ both in his death and resurrection is undoubtedly true 
but to say that in going down into the water he is burying his body just as his master's body was buried in the grave is to say what cannot be proved in saying all this i should be very sorry to be mistaken god forbid that i should wound the feelings of any brother who has conscientious scruples on the subject and prefers baptism by dipping to baptism by sprinkling i condemn him not to his own master he stands or falls he that conscientiously prefers dipping may be dipped in the church of england and have all his children dipped if he pleases what i contend for is liberty i find no certain law laid down as to the mode in which baptism is to be administered so long as water is used in the name of the trinity let every man be persuaded in his own mind he that sprinkles or simply pours water in baptism has no right to excommunicate him that dips and he that dips has no right to excommunicate him that sprinkles or pours water neither of them can possibly prove that the other is entirely wrong i leave this part of my subject here whatever some may think i am content to regard the precise mode of baptizing as a thing indifferent as a thing on which every one may use his liberty i firmly believe that this liberty was intended of god it is in keeping with many other things in the christian dispensation i find nothing precise laid down in the new testament about ceremonies or vestments or liturgies or church music or the shape of churches or the hours of service or the quantity of bread and wine to be used at the lord's supper or the position and attitude of communicants on all these points i see a liberal discretion allowed to the church of christ so long as things are done to edifying the principle of the new testament is to allow a wide liberty i hold firmly myself that the validity and benefit of baptism do not depend on the quantity of water employed but on the state of the heart in which the sacrament is used those who insist on every grown-up person being plunged overhead in a baptistry and those who insist on splashing an immense handful of water in the face of every tender infant they receive into the church at the font are both alike in my judgment greatly mistaken both are attaching far more importance to the quantity of water used than i can find warranted in scripture it has been well said by a great divine a little drop of water may serve to seal the fullness of divine grace in baptizing as well as a small piece of bread and the least tasting of wine in the holy supper to that opinion i entirely subscribe end of chapter five part one